This is Most of Musa, episode number 11. Today in the studio, I have an author and an associate professor of English literature, Adnan Mahmutovic. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Musa. How are you? I'm very good, actually. It's uh, it's a very nice day to do this recording. Yeah, the weather is really nice outside it and is, everything. Yes. Yeah. So, you came to Sweden as a Bosnian refugee of war. And... People, I, I didn't really know about the Bosnian war and, and the genocide that happened there until I came to Sweden. And it's not a very well-known, I would say, like genocide or something, even though it was a really big deal. So I want to start with your experiences growing growing up there and what did you see there and how was the society? Well, it, it's really interesting that you say that, obviously, because... Uh, uh, because the war in in, in Yugoslavia and uh, especially in uh, Bosnia was uh, really broadcast all over the world, and uh, it was uh, uh, something that people watched uh, live, basically, because uh, it was uh, one of the wars where there was a lot of coverage. So there was uh, not just a lot of articles, but uh, but people could watch it live in many ways, uh, and and listen about it on the radio and 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 so on. And uh, but at the same time, I absolutely uh, understand what you mean uh, that it's it's a small country. Uh, surely it was uh, a, a really important country for. Uh, for the world, mm-hmm. uh, the entire you know Yugoslavia was an important country as uh, a part of uh, uh, the third axis, mm-hmm. neither the west nor the east. You know the that third axis uh, that and it had collaboration with a lot of other countries. The uh, the, the kind of neutral axis that, that that's what it was called, and um, and. For that reason, uh, and, and being you know strategically positioned in the, Bal- in the Balkans, it was uh, a very very important uh, place. Uh, so a lot of people did know about it, but at the same time, as it broke down in the 90s, people still didn't quite understand it. Uh, and uh, and I remember that even in Europe, uh, coming as a refugee to Sweden. People knew of Yugoslavia. People, uh, there were a lot of people who came from, you know, Bosnia and those those countries to work as you know uh, as as what we call the gastarbeiter or guest workers mm-hmm. in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and and, and so on. Uh, but still, there was a little bit of a surprise when we came as refugees. And for me, that was uh, that was also that was really interesting. You know, being in the middle of Europe, but also. Uh, wondering, are we a part of Europe? Uh, so, so there was a little bit of that question. That's something that uh, I, I feel is is an interesting thing that I grew up with before the war, uh, so during the war and after the war, you know, realizing that uh, that kind of uh, uh, in-between position uh, of, of, my, of my country and us as a people. Uh, so I, I grew up in, um, I was born in the, in the 70s, uh, and at that time, it was called Yugoslavia. It was, you know, a number of countries which uh, got together and built 
this uh, this big union. So uh, mm -hmm. that's that's what it was. It was a union of these smaller countries of the uh, of the southern Slavic Slavic countries. So like yeah. after the Soviet Union collapsed, then they made this union separately, or was it part of the Soviet no, Union? So, so Yugoslavia was built uh, slowly before uh, before the uh, the Second World War, partly, but then after World War Two, uh, that union, the big union, was uh, was really established, mm -hmm. and it was uh, a really strong uh, country. But it was built of all these different smaller countries, mm -hmm. which existed for centuries uh, in in different shapes, um, and. Um, so, so basically, I, I grew up in that uh, post World War II uh, environment uh, when uh, you know the, that entire area was being kind of rebuilt and uh, you know new thing, new new ways of living, new new things were coming and, and so on. So I was born kind of in the middle of it, mm -hmm. uh, and um, very much kind of growing up uh, in the seventies and the eighties uh, when. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know what's going on, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? So you are living that which was uh, this kind of established dream of of, of a country. And uh, so that's what you're learning. But you don't know that there is something brewing, that there's something mm -hmm. going on in the background, uh, which you know other people know of, or most people didn't know of it or didn't understand it. And uh, slowly, basically, in the, in the 80s, I think a lot of grown-up people would know that uh, you know something was going to happen. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, things were not going in the right direction. And then in the '90s, basically, when I was a teenager, suddenly there was a war. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I can tell you, like, uh, in um, if if you know when, uh, for instance, the um, during the Gulf War, I was I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I remember actually thinking at the time, you know, there was George Bush and Saddam yeah, and all yeah, that, yeah, all that yeah. stuff, you know, the, uh, so, so we listened to it on the news, we followed it on the news. And I, I remember thinking, you know, that shit couldn't happen here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we have, you know, brotherhood and unity and we are a good country, you know, that couldn't happen to us. Yeah. So that's, that's basically the mentality we were, we were growing up with. We were, um, taught to believe in that that kind mm -hmm. of mentality to have that kind of mentality uh that's and also like uh, the fight between the gulf and the americans they were two like racially uh, racially ideologically ethnically different people yes. while you were with your neighbors yes. and you weren't expecting that to happen within your own region absolutely not mm -hmm. no so so we were thinking you know our uh, ethnicity the peoples the religions we all you know coexisted uh, peacefully and it was uh, all good uh, we were not really taught a lot of the nasty history that was behind us you know a lot of that history we were not aware of as kids you know and uh, then you know suddenly in the 90s Things are happening, you know. I, uh, I I notice, you know. I go to school, and I uh, suddenly there is uh, there is a war. You know, my father is called, you know, to serve, uh, to go in uh, and and you know fight in uh, in Croatia, for instance. And he refuses, and then he, as a consequence, he he loses his job. Uh, most people who refuse to go in uh, and uh, wage war in. Um, you know, at Croatia, for instance, they they lost jobs, but still, you know, we still not don't believe it's going coming to us. Mm -hmm. We're still thinking, even though 
you know, it's just a couple of miles yeah. from here. Yeah. We still don't believe it's coming to us. Which it, part of the country did you live in? So I'm from northern Bosnia. It's called Banja Luka. It's the second largest city. Okay. Uh, so it's very close to Croatia, actually. Uh, northern Sarajevo, the, the capital is like in the middle. Okay. Uh, so we are further up north. And uh, and that's uh, so I'm trying to tell you a little bit about the mentality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's it's something that most of us recognize, uh, even as as there was bombardment, even as as there was shooting, even as, as there was you know the ge- genocide had already started, ethnic cleansing, all those things had started, and we were seeing them live. We were still thinking, no, it's not coming to us. You see, that's so. That's this kind of clash between what you believe, what you, what you think this is, and 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 being completely surprised by it. Was uh, it just personally you that was thinking, or was it just the whole general notion around you? I think uh, a lot of people did. Very few people did uh, believe something else. In fact, I have friends from all over Bosnia, from all over you know the, the region, uh, and even. Uh, you know, my friends from Srebrenica, where there was, you know, the worst genocide, mm-hmm. even they say, we, we didn't see it coming. We still, mm-hmm. you know, believe that, yeah, it's going to come down, mm-hmm. you know, things will get better. And they were not getting better, obviously. So, so there was this kind of clash between what was going on, the, the horror that was going on, and this idea like, Okay, well, maybe it'll pass tomorrow and tomorrow and in a month. No, in two months. What about, you know, well, well, three months have gone, four months, five, you know, and so on. And year by year has passed yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and more and more horror uh, you know, uh, just uh, developed in, in kind of differently in different places. I can tell you actually a little bit about, so as I said, I'm from Banja Luka. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother is originally from another town called Kotorbaros, which is only some 30, 40 kilometers away. That's where my uh, other family uh, lived. And in that place, you know, my uncle was actually in, in a concentration camp. Oh. And, you know, uh, my aunt was raped. Uh, and we didn't know anything about it. You know, it's just a couple of miles from from us. And still, you know, because at that moment, there was not a lot of fight or there was not a lot of you know, shooting around our area. Uh, we didn't think it was that bad, you know, until it comes to you. Yeah. Uh, so that's just kind of explain you a little bit about uh, how that kind of uh, very... Uh, very uneventful childhood that I had. You know, I was a kid who just uh, loved. Um, I loved the woods. You know, I loved uh, uh, swimming in the rivers. Uh, I I loved uh, you know the nature. I loved uh, studying a lot. You know, I was uh, I was actually uh, a really good student uh, at the time. So I basically I just uh, loved reading I loved comics uh, I loved movies I loved uh, uh, you know being out a lot uh, and, and and so on so it was a pretty un- like a normal kind of, yeah, yeah very uneventful in in many ways just like a very uh, kind of regular um, working class mm-hmm. life uh, that we had it was a kind of good working class life uh, that, that that we had my uh, uh, g- good family and and all that 
so so that kind of clashed a lot with you know what happened in the 90s and uh, and I can tell you even that um, as we left Bosnia as as we left in the 90 in the 90s in 1993 actually so it was quite close to the beginning of the war I I remember I was on a bus to Sweden First, how did your family come to the decision of leaving the country? Oh, that was it wasn't that difficult actually because there was uh, uh, ethnic cleansing, so so you pretty much had to leave. Okay. Yes. Uh, so uh, in in my town, especially, there was not a lot of fighting because they uh, uh, the Serbs wanted to keep it kind of more intact. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of. Uh, other kinds of tactics to kind of push people out, you know, so not not to destroy everything. But mm-hmm. uh, there was there was some other there was uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, torture and all kinds of things, but uh, not like in as I was saying in this other town where my mother comes from. Uh, they burned houses down and things like that, and killed people. And they they had these uh, uh, raped women. All, all, all that stuff was happening a lot more there. Uh, so, so it was pretty much uh, just they organized these buses, put us on the buses, and you just leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I had no idea we were coming to Switzerland. We, we discovered that we were going to the, to Scandinavia at the time. <laughs> so that was a bit like, oh, going to to Scandinavia, that's really interesting. You know, mm-hmm. where are we going? You know, and, and I was thinking. I remember having we had relatives in Sweden. Okay. Uh, uh, on my mother's side, the her cousin lived in Sweden from the 70s, I think. And they used to come to Bosnia and visit. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking of them, they were like alien. Mm -hmm. They always talked about goodies and doggies. (laughs) Even of the Swedish words. And I was like, we always made fun of them. They they looked really cool, like the clothes they had, the way they behaved and Mm -hmm. so on. So they were really quite different, you know, uh, culturally. They were like, who are these people? And and they were family. Uh, so, so when I thought of that, so maybe we'll end up in Sweden. You know, that's we we have relatives there. But my my primary uh, hope was, or, or what I was thinking. So here is me being a kid. You know, I was thinking Sweden. They must have a lot of comic books. <laughs> yeah. So I was really looking forward to like, oh, being a refugee, who cares? As long as there's enough comics, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so is it? Those few months, I still didn't quite understand mm. what was going on, yeah. you know, uh, until I got to Sweden, to refugee camps, you know, moving from one camp to another, mm. seeing all these other refugees from all over Bosnia, all you know, from uh, other places as well, but mainly from Bosnia. And then, you know, you, you start realizing, oh, my God, uh, all these things could have happened to me. And then fear starts to kick in. Then you start, start thinking, "Oh, now I'm afraid when I'm uh, when I'm safe, when I'm supposed to be safe." Now I feel that fear, which I didn't feel during uh, during the war, <laughs> because at that time, you know, the mentality was yeah. a bit different. So those were kind of the, those first few years uh, we we spent in uh, in refugee camps, moving from one to another is is really kind of depressing, mm. really really kind of depressing. Uh, although we could we could study, we could uh, you know just we we could walk around. It's, it's, it wasn't like a camp camp, you know, that you couldn't leave it. But still, you know, just being 
in, in that state of in between you, you you don't know if you're staying or moving away uh, moving back or what's going on and it's just that kind of state of waiting which i think most refugees recognize and uh, and we, we were lucky we got uh, we got our situation kind of solved within or resolved within a couple of years whereas you know some other refugees wait for years to get uh there are situation resolved during that time mm-hmm. did you want to go back or did you want to you saw all the comic books here and you ah, wanted yes. to stay <laughs> yes yes uh, indeed i was uh, i i immediately kind of went around we were in uh, one of the refugee camps was in uh, uddevalla if you know on the on the west coast okay just uh north of uh, gothenburg mm-hmm. uh it was a nice town uh by the sea and uh, I, I found the comic book store and I couldn't read anything you know but uh, obviously I didn't know Swedish but I was so happy to just see all those comic books uh, no but we, we the, it was kind of mixed uh, there was a desire to go back uh, but then also this fear of what would that mean because we got news that it was getting worse in places and uh, and so on uh, so so that was like for, for for several years it was that in between you, in fact you know at the time people people were a little bit split in two groups the group who uh, expressed this desire to go back and the, and the group which said no we would actually like to stay mm-hmm. so it became kind of shameful to think or to say I'd like to stay. Yeah. It became something that's, that's that was looked down upon. Mm. <laughs> Whereas so, so it became kind of obligatory to say that no, I long to go back. I I I, lo- I really really desire to go back as soon as the war is over. I'm going back. Most of those people didn't go back. Mm. So so I always felt that I always disliked that hypocrisy yeah, exactly. in, in, in the people. I remember my father wasn't quite keen on, on, on moving back. And uh, myself, I, I did. And I was really kind of uh, taken by all those people who spoke with such zeal about going back. And I was like, uh, I was always looking at my father, th- th- telling him, like, why aren't you like them? You know, why, why don't you want to go back? You know, I, would al- I was always kind of angry with him mm-hmm. because of that. And then as the war ended and we could see slowly that, no, everyone kind of changed their story. Mm-hmm. Uh, they real- realized, no, this is not working. You know, there's nothing to go back to. And it's, it's really, it, it will be really extremely tough. Uh, then... I started to appreciate the honesty of my father uh, in, you know, as opposed to, to a lot of these people who were... Yeah, they had two yeah. choices, either start your life here or start yeah. your life there, yes. which would be relatively harder. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And some people did return, no, no doubt. And they struggled and they, uh, they rebuilt uh, their homes. And uh, they, uh, those were really extremely uh, brave people, especially in places that were ethnically cleansed, like my city. So it's, it's different in other places. But, but if, uh, if you're going back to a place where, where, where basically your entire street is empty, mm-hmm. so it's just you, maybe another neighbor, maybe two more neighbors, but really a lot of old people, no kids. Mm -hmm. Like when I go back, I go back every summer, you know, and and visit my house, which I rebuilt. There's no kids. 
you know, the, the, the people who have returned is usually a lot of older people. And they always say, oh, my God, it's so nice when you come and you have kids and you can hear kids playing in the streets and so on. So, uh, so they like it a lot because otherwise it's kind of dead the, the rest of the year. So how, how is the country like? Are they in the process of rebuilding or how far have they gone right now? Is the government any good at doing the job? It's, it's one of the most complicated places on earth. Uh, absolutely. You see, uh, uh, politically, it's, it's one country, but then, you know, where I come from and a lot of the, the, the country is uh, is a, like a separate entity, which is called uh, the Serbian Republic, Republika Srpska, and they have their own kind of uh, uh, system of, of governance and, and, and so on. So if you think of like it's like a, a government within a government uh-huh, or so, okay. something like that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure quite how, how to explain it in in more layman terms. No, I understand. Uh, yeah. So so it's not as easy to 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 live anywhere really. A lot a lot of places are not functioning uh, really well. Uh, there's a lot of corruption. A lot of uh, war criminals still walk around. You know, and people who uh, who have returned, for instance, have to live side by side to see former you know war criminals actually occupying positions within the government and uh, and uh, important position uh, positions in the um, in different municipalities mm-hmm. so it's not 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 as easy it's very very hard especially now during covid times i, I hear really bad news about malfunctioning governments and uh, you know vaccination all those things uh, uh, it's um, it, it's quite tough. I mean, I, I used to have this notion that when a war is won and the losers, like if they're like bad people, they just go away or they just get killed yes. or jailed, whatever. Yes. But I've researched a lot. I'm really into like uh, the 20th century, like history, like World War Two, and then the communist era. Mm-hmm. And then I researched and then realized even like the big Nazi officers weren't like uh, persecuted. There were still some had like big houses and mansions. And you also, if you look at the whole Stalin era and after that, when the Soviet Union collapsed, like still like people who committed all those crimes and atrocities, they were still in those powers of position or they were retired with like hefty pensions and property and all that. Uh, And people just forget about it and just move on. Indeed, you just kind of have to have to live with it because mm-hmm. there's no no other way. Especially if they are occupying a, a lot of uh, important, like they, they can be mayors, they can be uh, police uh, chiefs of police. You know, they can, they can be uh, any anything. Uh, I can tell you a, a story which is uh, which kind of illustrates this in in a good way. I have a friend who survived, uh, I think, six concentration camps. Uh, lost, uh, I think, uh, 70 members of his family. It's like completely insane um, on so many levels. And he he's actually quite a cheerful guy. <laughs> when, when you meet him, you wouldn't, you wouldn't guess uh, because uh, he has uh, that kind of strength and, and, uh, and aura of, uh, uh, of someone who is kind of looking forward to you know, fighting for the future, and he uh, he's actually testified, obviously as as many have testified in different courts, um, and at at one point he was 
going to this court, he was testifying against uh, a guy uh, who was uh, in one of the concentration camps. Uh, so, so he was there, testified against him, and on the way back home, he stops at some gas station, and there on the other side is the same guy, also, you know, oh the way in court, just uh, just like uh, uh, you know, a few hours ago, they yeah. were in the in, in court together, and uh, and this uh, the, my friend, you know, he he says to him. Well, you should have told me because we could have um, gone in the same car, <laughs> save the money, yeah. save the gas money. <laughs> so it's like really, really ironic, but it's really. I can't even of, imagine. Yeah. Like I'm getting teary-eyed just listening to that. So is the guy in Bosnia? Or is he living here now? No, he, li- he lives in Bosnia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't imagine. Mm-hmm. But I guess it makes sense in a way that he has seen such horrific things, mm-hmm. and then. Like he has seen the worst part of humanity in a way, and he would want to like it's it's a really truly amazing how optimistic he can be. Yeah. He only wants to look at the brighter side of things now. Mm. Okay, so you used to read a lot of comic books and books, mm. so I guess it was easy for you to transition to writing books and publishing mm. them. How how did you start with that? When did you write your first book? How did you come to that? Part? Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, journey. Uh, well, you're right. You know, growing up, I uh, my greatest desire was to uh, to write comics and to actually draw comics. I was pretty good at drawing as well, so uh, so that was like a big. That's still a big dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but now I, you know, I haven't I haven't drawn anything in years, and uh, uh, I don't think I could manage, you know, to learn that craft. Uh, so I focused on the writing. Mm-hmm. So what happened was basically yeah so so that that was that was my big dream uh, to 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 write and um, uh, and and draw comics. Uh, that dream kind of uh, disappeared slowly. I'm not quite sure how. I I was um, I lived in a small Swedish town. I went to you know learn Swedish and um, I went to an art school for a while uh, for two years. I did all kinds of things. A little bit of drawing, photography. Uh, ceramics, the, the, those kinds of things, and I really, really liked that. Then I um, basically I moved to uh, I moved to Stockholm. I had a friend in Stockholm. I, I wanted to do something. Uh, I wanted to study, uh, and uh, in Bosnia I was studying to be an engineer, which I never kind of liked that much. I was good at it. I, I was good at mathematics and uh, you know physics and all those mm-hmm. things, but. Uh, I kind of never really liked it that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, so what happened was that I got a bit of a flavor for language. Uh, I it, it was perhaps bound to those experiences in uh, in refugee camps when I, I you know you couldn't communicate. You know you speak another language, but then so you you can't communicate with anyone. You don't know any other language which works you know mm. um, i did study german but that was my german was so poor um i i couldn't you know say i couldn't string five words together in english to to you know to get some food even yeah. and so so i was really ashamed of myself and i was having the, the, those kinds of existential crises yeah and i was losing my mother tongue and all those things but then when i learned swedish i felt like oh my god this something happened Something opened up, you know, and uh, I felt like I would I would like 
like to write about things that happened. And I, uh, I started you know, scribbling things down a little bit, but still I felt that I didn't have any language to write in because you know my, my mother tongue was, uh, I wasn't that, that good uh, in it. Uh, I, and it was getting weaker and weaker you know, in a different environment. My Swedish was obviously getting better, but not good enough. Um, so that, that was kind of, uh, I just uh, put it on ice, that dream. Of, of writing is that you but but I kept studying you know I, I found a job as an assistant a care assistant uh, so I worked in that uh, for many years uh, and uh, and I felt like oh I need I need to study I want to study to explain it like this like I went to high school in Bosnia but that wasn't recognized here so that diploma was nothing yeah I would have to start from scratch which I did. But it took such a long time. And then, because I was, uh, I, I liked learning languages, so I studied, I studied Swedish and English at the same time. And uh, at one point, like, I, I applied to the university f- to do either Swedish or English. Mm-hmm. And I got into English. <laughs> you know, and that was decided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I thought, okay, this will, this will be fun, you know, to do a little bit of that. Then I, in the first year, I... I have a teacher from Pakistan. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> uh, I have a teacher. Uh, she's, uh, her name is Ishrat Lindblad, uh, married to a Swedish doctor. She's a Shakespearean, kind of tiny, kind of Pakistani woman, mm-hmm. you know, in a sari, but speaking with this really strong voice. And I was like, uh, the drama, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, and I was like, just, just fell in love. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, that is, I want to be her. You know, so so I fell in love with that. I I, I studied literature and uh, and philosophy at the same time, and slowly, you know, as my English was getting better and better, uh, I kind of felt. And this was two thousand three, so that would be like ten years after I came to Sweden. I started writing a little bit, uh, some short stories, some essays. In, uh, in English. I, I also started a novel and it took me a couple of years. Uh, I uh, slowly got better at it and, and, and built you know, some kind of sense of, of you know, language. It was, for me, actually, this fateful decision was really good because I wasn't relying either on Swedish or Bosnia, my first mm-hmm. and the second language. Instead, I had a third language so I could look from the outside you're also making it harder on yourself. <laughs> I, I was making it harder for myself, but definitely I was. But also easier because then it wasn't connected to any of my nationalities. Mm-hmm. It was just like a foreign language. So I could kind of look back at myself through that language and it was easier. Mm-hmm. It was easier to understand myself and what was happening. That, you know, uh, I, I felt I was a little bit too close to Bosnian and, and Swedish, as if you see what I mean. So... Um, Slowly, you know, published a couple of stories here and there, and um, I was uh, I got into a PhD, started uh, writing a PhD on post-colonial literature, obviously because that was that kind of was close to yeah. me. If you see what I mean, like uh, similar experiences mm-hmm. and uh, uh, similar problems of uh, that that were described in those books by you know famous post-colonial writers and uh, African, uh, Indian, Pakistani, and, and so on, uh, so many of them. And I then, uh, as I was working on a PhD, uh, I was also working on my first novel. 
I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my supervisor. <laughs> he he would always tell me afterwards, like, had I known that you were writing a novel, I would have kicked you out. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> because it's 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 impossible to do two things at the same time. Yeah, you know, yeah. a PhD is, yeah. is a big thing. Yeah. Uh, But then uh, I, I always told them, you know, I wanted to stay sane <laughs> because PhD was driving me nuts. Yeah. And so I wanted to stay sane. And I had these post-traumatic, you know, the, the stresses and yeah, you know, yeah. these, these traumas to, mm. to deal with. You needed a separate outlet. Yeah. I needed that, mm. you know, because it wasn't, uh, you know, acad- the academia was uh, tough uh, in many ways. Uh, so at the same time as I finished my PhD, I also finished my first novel, uh, and uh, and the way it got out was there was a competition for the first novel mm-hmm. in England, uh, and I entered uh, and I won. So that was my f- uh, that was my first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, What's the name of the book? So the name of the book is Thinner Than a Hair. Okay. Thinner Than a Hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, It very much describes uh, the life in Bosnia before the war, during the war, and a little bit of after the war. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, uh, fictional yeah. or hist- more historical? And uh... it's actually it's both, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a fictional story, but uh, it's a collection of a lot of uh, events that uh, that did happen. Mm-hmm. So just kind of tie them into a narrative. But a lot of things that happened to my family, my friends, and uh, a lot of things I knew of. Uh, 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 that kind of book, mm-hmm. kind of coming of age uh, yeah, yeah. story. How did you feel when the book got published? That was huge. Yeah, that was huge. Which yeah. was better, getting the PhD or getting the book? Oh, the book, obviously. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The PhD. Obviously, that was that was a uh, that was huge. Mm-hmm. That's it's one in a lifetime uh, experience. You know that that kind of project. It's uh, the insanity of it and the finishing of it. It's it, it's obviously something that's uh, unrepeatable. And uh, you can write many books afterwards, but nothing compares mm-hmm. to finishing that first one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but the thing is with with the PhD uh, and the academic writing, it's something that most people can can do. But you know, writing a novel is is a lot harder. It's a lot harder, and it is uh, really that's where you feel that either you know the language or you don't. You know, I, a lot of people can you know do academic work without. Actually, being able to uh, to converse in English—I mm-hmm. uh, mean, seriously—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, uh, it's just you get, get specialized in, in uh, discoursing a certain way. Mm-hmm. But to write a novel, you have to master the discourse on so so many levels. And uh, and for me, knowing I succeeded in that was a huge boost. Like, okay, I could I could actually do this. Uh, I wasn't. Uh, it was. It was not something that um, wasn't a pipe dream. You know, I, I could do this. You know, I had published some short stories before that, but this was big. You know, so and uh, yeah, that that's you know my baby. 
my first baby. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it sounds strange and amazing at the same time. You wrote this uh, this novel in the third language, and then it's not English is not something that you learned while growing up. You learned it later on in life. It sounds yes, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I tell people, "Hey, I speak five languages," mm. it sounds impressive, but my level in each language is mediocre. Yes. <laughs> I've noticed yeah. that as well, that uh, since I moved here, I, most of the time I speak English. And so even my mother tongue is getting worse and worse. And yes. tr- when I'm speaking it, like there are like several words of English that I throw in there. Indeed, yes. Mm. That's uh, um, that's very common. And uh, it's, that, that's what happens to everyone. Mm. You, you really get separated from, uh, from, from uh, another language, especially the mother tongue, I, think, I feel, suffers a lot. Uh, you you mix languages quite a bit. Uh, like when I speak English, I don't mix anything. Mm-hmm. But when I speak Bosnian or Swedish, I mix a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that's that's really interesting. I I feel. Uh, I like to g- kind of think about it in the way uh, Moxin Hamid. You know Moxin Hamid. Oh yeah, I read his books. Yes. So uh, Moxin Hamid said uh, that he. Um, Basically, he he said English is his uh, uh, first and third language because <laughs> yeah. it's like he said uh, that he learned it first. Then he forgot it. I think then he he learned Urdu, and then learned English again, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. So he said it's and and you know I, I think it's true. Mm. Uh, what what is your first language? Well. What does it mean even? Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mother tongue is Urdu, yes. but I probably know English more than that my mother tongue. Probably now, but <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah. depends, you know. And yeah. I, in fact, I enjoyed quite a bit. Recently, I was uh, working on some translation of my uh, on my uh, stories and, and articles uh, in Bosnia because they wanted to publish them in some places, and uh, I couldn't quite do it alone. I did the kind of rough translation, then I used some help. Mm-hmm. obviously uh, but uh, uh, so it was really interesting kind of going back mm-hmm. going back to that yeah mm. Mohsin Amid is he the one who wrote A Case of Exploding Mangoes no no, 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 no. Okay. he is uh, he is the author of uh, Moth Smoke and oh, yeah. The Reluctant Fundamentalist oh yeah 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 I've Exit seen the West. movie as well yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. I saw that yes so how many books have you written so far now so so far I have uh, let's see I have uh Three, let's say four now four uh, academic books mm-hmm. uh, and I have two novels and one short story collection wow mm-hmm. so so three books of uh, fiction mm-hmm. uh, creative nonfiction as well essays things like that uh, what was like the reception that you got from the first book uh, was it all like uh, did people like it or was it also some like people who like oh this is not what actually happened were there like some people say this is a controversial book or how did you how did people receive it I, I had no negative response mm-hmm. at all no negative response at all uh, really got uh, uh, excellent reviews uh, throughout if someone didn't like the book they didn't like the book just like they, they didn't like the story perhaps mm-hmm. but uh but I had no, it was not controversial at all in a, in any way. Okay. So nothing like that. So as a brown Musa, now I want to talk to you about the black Musa. Okay, okay. <laughs> I see. So how did that, how did you go into that article? What, what got you into it in the first place? Mm-hmm. Into that whole topic of mm-hmm. black Moses matters. Mm-hmm. Yes. So th- 
Black Moses Matters, this article, uh, article slash essay slash story slash, you know, it's a, it's a hybrid piece. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's actually not one genre. It's so, so many different genres in, in one. Uh, it's uh, something I've uh, uh, been meaning to to write about for for many years. It's one of the first things that I got concerned about in my uh, in my life. Okay. Uh, so basically, what happened was that uh, already in the beginning, I noticed that uh, uh, I, I saw a lot of people who were quite uh, quite racist. In Bosnia, or uh, yeah, yeah, among among Bosnian uh, among Bosnians who were refugees, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, I had not obviously I wasn't aware of that. You know, in in Bosnia we were concerned with you know other things yeah. like ethnicity, religion, uh, uh, different ideologies. You know, all th those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, race is not something that we grew up with as even as a concept. We, we never really studied it. We uh, never really talked about it in school. Uh, it, was, uh, it was really quite something foreign to me as, as an idea, you know. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, coming to Sweden, being in these refugee communities, or, or they were kind of uh, immigrant communities, but there's a lot of different kinds of people from all over the world. And then you see then you see different reactions. You see people don't liking each other. And I'm used to people not liking each other on uh, the basis of ethnicity or religion or something like that, mm -hmm. politics. But then then I, I, I would hear people talk about um, other people's skin color and, uh, and race. And I was like, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you, you know, speaking about these, for instance, these uh, Somali kids as uh, apes or something mm -hmm. like that? It was really horrible to me, and I couldn't quite grasp it, but I was really bothered by it. Uh, and uh, at the time, I'd being, you know, a comic book guy, mm -hmm. you know, I was reading uh, a book by Arch Spiegelman, if you know of it, Mouse. It's called Mouse. Okay. Uh, it's a book uh, about a guy who draws comics in uh, the States, and his father was in Auschwitz. Uh, so his father is a survivor of uh, the Holocaust. And uh, he's trying to tell this story about his father, who is kind of, uh, 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 he's, uh, he's, he's not an easy personality, you know, but he's been through a lot, you know, mm -hmm. so, so this, this kind of story which tries both to show uh, what he suffered and what made him in, in a way, uh, so there is one scene in in that book where uh, so Arch Beagleman's father sees a black hitchhiker, mm -hmm. uh, and he calls him the N word, but in German, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, and I identified with that so much. I, I identified with that so much because I felt like okay, here what we have is someone who has suffered racism. <laughs> but has somehow also expresses mm -hmm. that, that, that racism. And I'm like this, uh, like Arch Spiegelman, I'm trying to deal with that. Like how, how can I connect these two things? How can I connect with these um, um, compatriots, my, you know, my own people uh, who are also expressing these kinds of things? And it doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. you, you've suffered, 
so you shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, that 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 should be like excluded by by uh, by default. Somehow. You should be the person who will be like completely opposite. Complete opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you're not. You yeah. know, you're really intolerant and uh, and. Mm. Um, I'm not saying everyone, obviously, but I've, I was seeing a lot of that, and so uh, so that was one of my concerns. And I remember I, c- I kind of kept going back to that, and in my teaching also, I, I would always try and reflect on it, uh, and um, and uh, obviously, you know, I was uh, always fascinated by the story of Moses. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I kept I keep going back to that story because uh, we got familiarize with it even if we know those if even if we are in those cultures which have those religions mm-hmm. like you know the uh, Judaism and the Christianity and Islam and so on and Moses is one of the biggest mm-hmm. prophets of all times right uh, we still kind of don't know a lot about him mm-hmm. Uh, what what the book says. So a lot of people would be really surprised if they really looked paid attention to some of the things they would be really surprised. Uh, and uh, and I was thinking that my vision of, of of that prophet was also shaped by Hollywood and uh, and by these uh, these kinds of implied uh, notions, uh, which I don't know where they came from. Yeah, you know? I don't know how my my vision, how I visualize mm-hmm. him, how was that shaped? You know, I, I I had that that moment of like. What the hell? Mm-hmm. You know, this doesn't exist. You know, uh, and you you see how you sometimes you and I'm a professional reader. You know, I'm an associate professor in English literature or literature. I'm a professional interpreter. Yeah. You know, which means that my job is to look at text and see what's going on for real. Mm-hmm. And if I see something, if I have a reading that is ideologically shaped, I'm supposed to be able to to see it see through that and focus on it and see okay how was that made that's what i teach my students so i have this moment like well i'm not reading this right you know what is going on here why am i whitewashing this this character mm-hmm. and why am i doing that this that doesn't make sense here uh it's it's not logical and i'm trying to find the logic which is not there because i won't accept that that my image mm-hmm. is wrong so I've in in my profession, you know, and as a writer, I've had a lot of those kinds of moments, and I feel it's important to have them and acknowledge them. So I had this moment for for uh, for a while. I was going to different episodes from uh, Moses' life, like uh, reflecting on them and noticing some really cool things. And then suddenly, I, I was thinking, like, well, uh, I was in the process of. Um, just kind of rethinking myself and i was feeling a lot of um, that there was some kind of uh, conflict and, and some kind of di- dialogue was going on inside me with the help of the image of moses mm-hmm. and that story it, it, you know that story kept making me rethink myself mm-hmm. uh, and i liked that a lot I, I was just enjoying it so much and uh, and i felt okay well let me start with this thing which had been at the center of uh, my my writing for so many years, mm-hmm. and the st- center of my studies, you know, as a post-colonial scholar, uh, I wanted to 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 go into that personally, you know, uh, and I want to go in, into that with all my with the, the the arsenal I got, you know, as a writer, as an academic, as mm-hmm. all these things that I have 
gathered over over the years uh, because now suddenly I could. Yeah, you had the tools to tackle had, that challenge. Now, now I could. I had all the tools. Now I could be personal, but also really strict academically. I could. I could just move uh, at different levels at the same time. I felt now perhaps the time is right. And uh, and uh, I started writing this and uh, slowly going into that. Uh, uh, I I asked a friend who is. Um, a speaker and a scholar in the States. Uh, she is uh, like an activist as well. And I asked Louise, am I, uh, she's, she's of, uh, um, uh, she has uh, African origin, you know, so, uh, and, uh, uh, and I, I met her in Stockholm as well. She's really uh, always telling me that, uh, that the Bosnian community as being, you know, white Muslim in Europe and European Muslim, that they have a role to play, that they should, use that more and and reflect on who they are and uh, so i uh so i took that also as a cue and talked to her a little bit and and i saw that i was doing the right thing you know i got this confirmation that i was i wasn't going to i wasn't going down the wrong path mm. here uh, i took that as a lot of inspiration and uh, i was thinking okay what what should i do and uh, so i i basically sent it around and here is a moment which happens, and that is you find uh, the right place and the right outlet for it. So when I got in touch with this uh, uh, this uh, journal called Bangal Media, okay. which, which published it, I got uh, an amazing editor. So what happened there is that this editor was so meticulous you know, he was so good. He yeah. understood exactly what I what I wanted to do, and he pushed me so much, you know, uh, to 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 get the best out of me, you know. And that's something I was also dreaming about. So it was like fate was really connecting yeah, things, yeah. you know. I I felt ready to do this, and I found the right pe- um, person to push to, you to push me, mm-hmm. you know. And and th- this is something I feel that is really essential for writing this kind of intimacy with, you know, in con- communication. To make to make a connection with uh, mm-hmm. someone and and with readers eventually, and you know one thing led to another, and it it became probably one of my f- most famous mm-hmm. <laughs> pieces ever. Really, you know, was uh... the idea of a white Muslim is not very common. I would say, as like a Pakistani, when I look at a person who is white and who is a Muslim, I would my first thought would be, oh, he's a convert, yes. not like he was yes. born. He, maybe he could be a Bosnian, he could be an Albanian. Yes. But yeah. I guess like compared to the rest of the world, it's such a minority in yes. Europe. So you don't right. really consider that. Mm. So once you went out to write about mm. uh, Black Moses, mm. was your goal to just prove factually, historically that Moses was black? Mm. Or was your goal like take it as a symbolic thing and mm. use it to compare your life and your identity uh, yes absolutely well obviously uh, to to prove that yes that he was black at least in our tradition uh, was really important that that was one thing the second thing immediately it became symbolic it became symbolic of uh, of my life and that that kind of journey and in a sense uh, I, I could see myself as a kind of reflection of that uh, you know, uh, because it's, uh, as you say, a, a lot of people who are actually converts to Islam, mm. uh, they somehow become black. If you know what I mean. No, sorry. no. Okay, so uh, 
I, I know a lot of people who would say that somehow changing religion is almost as if they changed ethnicity. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, that, they, that they became of, uh, so it's like if you're a Swedish convert, that somehow immediately, you, maybe you change your name as well, but you, you, it's, it's almost like in the eyes of, of a lot of people, you know, your former friends and so on, you, you, you become like of a separate yeah, ethnicity. Yeah, you're, you're more Muslim now than you are Swedish. Yes, yeah. but, but, but almost like you're not of that ethnicity, of that nationality and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, you know, uh, what was important for me was the, the way we function, the way we imagine things and why we imagine things. So uh, even if we contest, uh, even if, you know, someone says, no, he was white or he was brown or he was black or and, and so on, even, you know, proving that is not as important as the fact that uh, why shouldn't be, we imagine, why, why can't we imagine mm-hmm. someone as you know, uh, non-white? Be, yeah. non-white. Mm. You know, that's, that's the major issue here is that there's something forcing our imaginary to, to take that leap, even if it's factual, mm. even if it's factual. Uh, so, but even if it wasn't factual, like, why is it not okay, you know, to, to imagine someone as, you know, that, that's, that's why I put this example in my article of the former president of Bosnia, like mm. if he was played in a movie by Morgan Freeman, you know, that's why I put that example. I thought that would be really cool, you know, but a lot of people would react to that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a white guy playing Moses, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so for me, that's all that, that, that's uh, uh, a, a big problem. We discussed that a lot in the article. Uh, if I should just insist on the imaginary or the factuality of, uh, of his skin color, uh, but I, I wanted to insist on both because it was that was important that it's not just symbolic, it's also mm-hmm. real, but also th- there is also this problem of how mm-hmm. we function and, and the consequences of that. Yeah, it is really strange how so many like prophets who were like African or Middle Eastern have been whitewashed. Like when I think yes, of yes. Jesus, peace be upon him, yes. like you have those like typical Christian like image of him with white yes. blonde hair, yes. while it, that was not the case. Mm. Plus also with Moses, one of the things that was mentioned in the article that one of his miracles was mm. when to show the Pharaoh one of his miracles he put his hand in his like pocket, for example, yes. and then when he took it out, it was white. Yes. But when I used to, I didn't know that when yeah. I read that in an article, mm-hmm. in my mind, I think from the cartoon, yes. you remember the cartoon that they had? I think mm-hmm. in the cartoon, when he takes it out, it glows white. Uh-huh. So I thought, I used to always think the miracle was light was coming out of his oh, hands, not that it actually changed the color of his the color skin. Of the skin. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. That was a really interesting thing yes. to learn. That's really cool uh, because then then you're thinking like uh, you are boosting the miracle into something. Uh, there is this need for that to be supernatural, mm. you know, something that is of... Uh, of the kind uh, that's uh, that, that is uh, what we consider truly truly miraculous. Yeah, like uh, divinity. Divi- yeah. Yes, th- this kind of thing which is so uh, absolutely out of place mm. that you can't ignore it. Uh, but uh, but for me, uh, the hand was uh, was exactly the example of uh, uh, of uh, the, the kinds of miracles which are. Uh, 
which are so uh, subtle. And, you know, uh, for me, this was really interesting. Like, if, if we think of miracles, I, again, Hollywood, mm. you know, we think of something that's bombastic. We think of something that's huge. You see what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Raising the dead or, you know. <laughs> parting the sea. Parting the like, sea, yeah. you know, something that's, like, grand. And mm. But if, if you read... And the Quran, and you know, the, if you read the, the, those books, you know, a lot of times the signs, the miracles are small things, mm. imperceptible things. Mm. Uh, and for me, that's that's kind of, uh, that's really cool. Mm. You know, that, you, you see, it, it's counterintuitive. Mm. It's counterintuitive to, to if, I, if I told you, okay, I'm going to show you a miracle. Is, is that a miracle? You're drinking water, you know, like, what? How is yeah, that yeah, miracle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. But that's because the, 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 that, that's the miracle of the, the mind. It's the miracle that is uh, your, your attention is drawn to thinking. Uh, and that's what the white hand versus the black hand was for me. Plus also, like I was thinking in the Quran, there's a verse where God is like the people, the pagans are asking Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, like, show us a sign, show sure. us a big miracle. Yes. And yeah. then God has says that I have already shown you signs. Look around you, look around the world. Yes. yes. And like yes. throughout the Quran, God doesn't describe yeah. like these amazing feats, like of people flying or whatever. Yeah. It's like he says, look at look at yourself, look yes. at your mind, look at butterflies, look at the seas, look at yes. the trees. Yes. Like look these are flies. so amazing things, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Look at a fly. Like what? A fly? I just killed a fly. Yeah. I just killed ten flies. Yeah. You know, yeah. is that a miracle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's a the whole system around it is so miraculous. That yes. how did they come to be, and then mm. the complicatedness in all those small little things. That mm. if you start to ponder and wonder about it, yeah. then you actually think, oh, this thing is such a huge miracle in a way. Yes. So the whitewashing of uh, like different historical characters, do you think it's a it's a way to market those characters for white audiences to make profit, or is it more connected to the colonial like mindset that white people are like superior or better? Like in Pakistan, we still have like this white inferiority complex. Mm -hmm. If you speak English, you're considered better. If you have a whiter skin, you're considered better. Mm -hmm. Like there's like all these commercials about different face creams that make you whiter. Plus also, like if you talk about Jesus or if, some, if you ask someone, uh, how did Jesus look like? Or how did Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, look like? They would say, oh, he was fair. Mm. And by fair, they automatically mean white. Yes, because yes. it's like fair and beautiful is like the yes. synonym for whiteness. Yes. Where did that come from? Is it like, I believe that it's probably because uh, the white colonialism, because they colonized most of the world and they... Uh, force us to think that we are inferior and second-class citizens, like everything about us, our skin color, mm. our ideas, our culture, everything was far inferior. Mm. So now we're just stuck in that mindset. I think so definitely there's uh, the, the colonial mindset is still uh, very much al alive. It's not going to go away any anytime soon. As, as you say, it's like uh, you, you do it instinctively. Mm. It's it's a, it's a part of your genes now, mm -hmm. in in a sense. In a, I think so. Absolutely, there's a, there's a lot of uh, evidence to that, uh, and uh, 
there's always the you know the in, in our languages the, the the white the the light is always uh, um, connected and better than the dark and uh, and so on. one thing leads to another but it's it was not always uh, always that way i think i uh, that was one of the things i tried to show in the article is that the, the words you know for for skin color didn't used to mean same things uh, they didn't have these identity markers and still they they don't entirely in in all the places uh, they, uh, they, it is really quite different in the states than in Sweden, than yeah. in Bosnia, than in Pakistan, than in and, and so on and so on. Uh, it, it is really quite different, you know, what those things mean, uh, how are, how they are uh, identities now. Suddenly, now, now we all just talk about identities, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if you go back to to those beginnings uh, and think. Uh, for instance, did, um, did uh, the, the first Muslims call themselves Muslims? Mm. Was that the, the, was being Muslim an identity mm. or, or something else? Mm. And how did they see themselves? Did they, did they see themselves as mu'min, you know, mm. as believers? Yeah. Uh, and not as, you know, identity gets shaped historically later. And now when I say, you know, uh, I'm a Muslim, that immediately means something quite different than it meant for them you know 1400 years ago uh and more than more than that yeah uh if you think of moses you know leaving uh, egypt are you thinking muslim because in a sense if that if you think in terms of uh, the way we think now uh, uh we should think muslim yeah you know and uh, the hebrews as an ethnicity and you know, going with him Muslim, you know, mm -hmm. as if if you think of uh, of it in terms of uh, of um, uh, you know being of that monotheistic yeah. religion. Uh, yeah, like like we Muslims believe that yeah. Moses was a Muslim because he believed in Allah. Yes. And if you yeah. think, okay, if he's a Muslim yeah. and Israelites are believing him, they're Muslims as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you, yeah, if you, if you if you use the words like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so if you're going to use the words. Uh, you know, for for Ibrahim alayhi salam or Jesus or what, uh, mm -hmm. alayhi salam and so on, uh, in a sense you could uh, <coughs> it's it's it becomes a bit anachronistic, mm -hmm. uh, but also in a sense if if you want to use it like that, then then you have to use it forever. You can't think Moses Muslim, but Hebrews leaving Egypt not Muslim yeah, yeah, <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it was uh, since it wasn't uh, identity for them uh, in the way it is for us now. They, they, it was a lot easier to accept people. It was a lot easier to actually uh, to think of uh, you know people joining different religions as uh, you know that conversion was was really quite different than today. Uh, that, that's why in, in the article why, why I wanted to, for instance, emphasize uh, that uh, if you remember in the beginning, I mentioned that uh, in that period before the war, uh, we had to register as Muslim. Mm -hmm. So, you see, that's even more than, than this calling ourselves like we say you're a Pakistani Muslim, I'm a Bosnian Muslim, that, that identity here, you, I, you, you pretty much kind of register it and, and it becomes like an official category. Yeah, yeah. It's not just something you call yourself. 
oh, this is my identity. Oh, like mm-hmm. I'm a comic book geek, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, that's my identity or, or whatever. Uh, but here you are registered as, that means someone can search the database and goes like, oh, I need all the Muslims, mm-hmm. you know, I need all the Jews, I need all the, 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 the Roma, or yeah, I need yeah. all of those, just pull out the list, these people. I mean, judging someone by their skin color doesn't seem wrong or bad to me. It seems more childish, like skin color, you're just born with it. Nobody can change it. And better, it's better to judge people on their behavior. If someone is bad, it's bad. Like even nowadays, if you see like the, it's mostly uh, happens in the US with the identity politics that if a black person is in office, then Oh, a black person is in office. They don't talk about if he's actually good at their job. It's yeah. just, oh, that specific gender or the specific skin color person is in office. Yeah. I just uh, like, I was thinking about this, that we think like back in the days, like these different empires, they were very barbaric and backwards in their mm-hmm. thinking. But if you look at them, if you look at like Genghis Khan, his empire, or if you look at the Mughal empire, like, those kings, even though there were certain, like, for example, Mughal Empire, kings were Muslims, but in their courts, they were like Christians, they were like, there were a lot of Hindus. But now in this modern age, like Hindus and Christians is like completely, uh, we can't even think that that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. That recently, when this uh, Pakistan has a new government came uh, two, three years ago, and they wanted to appoint this minister onto this specific position. And he was not a Sunni Muslim. He was a Ahmadi, if you know what that mm, is. Yes, yeah. And, and it even that was unacceptable to people like, yeah. oh, he's Ahmadi. Oh, he can't be in office. Yeah. He can't be running into politics, which yeah. his religion has nothing to do with how he governs the country or if he the can, policies uh, perform his yeah. duties well yeah yeah exactly yeah. such a weird concept but again, going back just to uh, again to, to history uh omar uh, the 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 second khalifa didn't he appoint uh, a jew to 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 run jerusalem although it was under uh, you know uh, muslim uh, rule so Mm-hmm. He didn't see yeah, that as yeah, a problem. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't a problem at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's like a huge example. Yeah. Uh, uh, just there, I, I I think there's a, in Bosnia this is a big problem as well. Uh, you you see uh, a lot of parties who also operate in those terms, and uh, and that's detrimental. It's not always the best, uh, but you know there's nepotism, there's all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but something you see in Bosnia uh, is sometimes that that really makes you uh hopeful is you you see how much people some uh, uh appreciate good people mm-hmm. uh surely there's a lot of that negative stuff a lot of nepotism a lot of that uh, you know politics and the, all those division but then you you see uh when i think like recently uh, there was um, uh, a man who uh, who did some really great things uh, at the beginning of the war and before that uh, in in that in the Yugoslav government, and he's of Serb ethnicity, and uh, he was supposed to be a um, a mayor of Sarajevo now, and people just loved it, you know, that this good guy was coming back. No one cared that he was, uh, you know, Serb or not, uh, whatever. Uh, Another example, uh, recently there was uh, a movie about genocide in Srebrenica. Uh, the main character, uh, 
uh, is played by by a Serbian actress. Mm-hmm. No problem at all for us, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you know, for some people, it would be a yeah, problem. Yeah, you yeah, know, they would yeah. think, okay, how is that even possible? So those kinds of things obviously make you mm-hmm. happy and 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 uh, and hopeful. You know, that you appreciate the yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's enough of it. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, examples I can say that nowadays in Hollywood when. Uh, um a black person plays an indian or like a latino person plays yes. black person or whatever there's a lot yes. of like those kind of conflicts yes like uh like in my family there's a person and they don't watch wonder woman because gal gadot used to be in the israeli army oh yes, yes. so yeah so yeah. there are like these different principles and these different like bases on things that we judge other people on because if we don't do that like we feel bad ourselves like we're kind of betraying our own principles mm-hmm. like for example if that actress who was serbian mm-hmm. some people if they if they thought if they were okay with her being serbian that in a way they might feel like they're betraying their own history and mm-hmm. what the sacrifices the ancestor made or betraying their own whatever nationalism or whatever you know what i mean yeah, yeah. definitely <laughs> i i i always go back to uh and again th- those are always the lessons from uh, from our history uh and all our different histories but also the histories of our religions and that's uh, you're always uh defined by how you treat minorities mm-hmm. uh if if you look at it it's always how the minorities are treated uh, uh that 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 is a defining feature mm-hmm. of uh any uh country of any uh, empire of uh, uh, of any uh, mm. so, so it doesn't matter who who you are it's always about that so i i uh, go back to, to an essay which uh, mohsin hamid wrote uh, where he um, uh, this is a collection of essays uh, it's called uh, i'm forgetting the title uh, Well, in any case, it's, okay, it's essays yeah. he's he's written uh, for for a couple of years, and uh, and and what he shows there is something I think we should all recognize is that how you treat minorities, you also treat yourself, mm. uh, and that's something that's the that, that I had seen before, and I can see it now also in this post-war period and and the politics, and what what you see is that uh, if you you say okay this is us and this is them and this is the minority and you treat them badly and then someone from your group treats someone from that minority well mm. and then everyone turns against him or her so in a sense you're ready to go against your own mm. group because you feel like they are traitors you you are ready to make them uh, mm. to label them as as, as traitors uh and that's that's easily done i think moxin's example was of uh doctors who were treating uh, a minority uh, i can't remember which uh, minority it was if it was ahmadiyya if it was uh, some uh, uh or or, or Hindu. i'm not i i don't remember i can't, mm. I can't tell but there is it's in the essay uh so he says well now we are oppressing ourselves <laughs> now that we are uh, having oppressed the minorities we start oppressing ourselves so it always kind of reflects back on you yeah it makes sense because um 
like survival of the fittest or the strong oppressing the weak is kind of like an evolutionary kind of way as uh, like a back in the day if you were strong and and you didn't have any food you would just take from the weak person it's like evolutionary kind of way like a hunter gatherer kind of mentality and then the way you said it correctly that the way you treat minority you have to work against your evolutionary brain and then go against that and if you do that then you're like okay yeah you're doing the right thing now <laughs> do you know about sadat uh, hasan manto mm. he was a no. urdu writer author and so he he was very controversial at his time because he used to write about very taboo subjects controversial subjects okay. and so one of his lines was he 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 had a lot of court cases against him because he used to write about prostitution or sex or whatever like that okay. so so there was this uh um in the court case the case was against his essay that he wrote and he used very vulgar languages and then he exposed the hypocrisy of society that you can go out in the market and you can hear people say all different kinds of like uh, swear words or curses or whatever but if when i put that in my book in my words then things go crazy and that's not yes. acceptable yes. <laughs> so yeah i hate hypocrisy as well and it's uh, it's good when you see people getting called out on that i i agree absolutely and uh, i had a some moments you you asked me earlier about uh, criticism i didn't have a criticism but uh, sometimes you get those things which are uh, related to representationalism mm -hmm. you mentioned this also earlier when you when you said um, when you spoke about you know the representationalism in movies mm -hmm. uh, who plays who and so on uh, when th this is something i discovered really early in my writing that oh, I, i i knew this was going to be a problem that people would because they are in this state of vulnerability especially that but uh, uh, in in other situations as well that they would uh, feel like oh is this what you're writing the right representation of the people or the religion or or whatever mm. uh, and uh, as someone who doesn't believe in representationality of writing of art so I try to write in a way so it's uh, to, to really try and uh, and move away from that so that the, the, the readers don't even think about that uh, you know this character is a metaphor of uh, this the black struggle or the black or struggle or something, yeah, something, something like that like, yeah because yeah. <laughs> yeah. then then you're in, in in the wrong category then, mm. then you're not talking about people as they are but as they should be in your imagination and mm. so, so i had a couple of issues when translating some of my stories earlier when pe when some people uh, said to me oh this is this is good but maybe she should say this and that and i said no because you know my grandma never spoke that way mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. if i'm going to translate this if if this is going to be some kind of reproduction of the way let's say my grandmother yeah, was reality yeah. uh then then she's not going to speak like this she never did speak like that mm -hmm. she wouldn't use those words which mm -hmm. you now in this in this period in your imagination you think that oh this is how our people speak mm -hmm. <laughs> you know
that was also another problem with me uh, writing in in my mother tongue and and uh, why I was pleased not to write in in Bosnian at the time is exactly because things were changing uh you know some some were you know the languages were changing mm-hmm. and I wasn't keeping up with what was happening maybe I also didn't like what was happening in some some places uh and I was afraid of that mm-hmm. I was afraid of going in the right in the, in the wrong mm-hmm. direction you know? uh, so for me that was it was really important like the, no representationality and yeah? so the, the, this is it's about you know describing our reality what happened yeah. and so yeah. on you like it you don't like it you think it's like oh someone is going to say that we are like this yeah, yeah. well i don't care mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah Uh, plus also maybe your grandma speaks that way and that person's grandma th- doesn't speak that way even maybe, though they're both yes. Bosnian Muslims like Absolutely. people are different definitely yeah just definitely. because one person is one way you can't just paint the brush in all of that group or community definitely mm-hmm. uh, you can see that a lot with our food mm-hmm. like same dishes in different parts are called I mean the names are so different yeah, yeah. but you wouldn't rec- you wouldn't know mm-hmm. you know it's like yeah. uh, if you say would you like some of like what is that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people yeah. recognize the cool things differently yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. plus also with food if i if i eat the food in lahore i think yeah. oh if i eat like biryani have you eaten biryani uh, yes yeah so if you eat biryani i'll be like oh lahore's biryani is the best that's the genetic biryani that's the genetic yeah someone was from karachi they say no karachi that's the pakistani biryani that's the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know pakistan is huge yeah it's huge yeah but yeah. is, is like um tiny uh, yeah yeah it's tiny it's just like a, a small perhaps uh how, how big is lahore now uh how many people are i don't know millions millions know. yeah so, so that's like the entire bosnia could fit into <laughs> a part of lahore uh but so, i can imagine yeah. even in that small yeah. bosnian country yeah. there's so many different ideologies and yes things going yeah on. Well, you just just go to food like mm-hmm. our traditional dishes you would go like oh no uh like like chevap mm-hmm. you know the, the meat dish okay uh the grilled meat uh, dish uh, really popular mm-hmm. okay so in bayaluka like because it's my 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 wife's family uh has that tradition of making the the famous bayaluka chevap mm-hmm. is from my wife's family you know so i would say that's the best mm-hmm. you just go like 10 kilometers to another town and it's like no no this is the <laughs> best yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there will be like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. always this competition yeah yeah mm-hmm. So now you've tackled one of your biggest challenges of uh, the Black Musa Matters mm-hmm. article. Mm-hmm. So do you have a next big goal? Are you working on a novel or a book or something? Uh, so yeah, I'm not, now I'm uh, um, uh, basically going back to... Uh, now I feel, having done this, I feel I can go back to... Uh, to write about myself more essays and uh, I, I avoided that for a while I have some essays some uh, autobiographical stuff uh, so what I did for uh, in my third no, uh, third book the novel called uh, uh, At the Feet of Mothers I uh, I have a story which takes place in the United States and and uh, Palestine uh, so I, I, I went to an entire different thing for a while just to move away from myself And with this Black Moses Matters, I'm coming back to myself and now I feel like I, I'm going to write some more essays, some more stories mm-hmm. that are kind of that hit closer to home. Mm-hmm. 
I feel I have more confidence in in doing it now, uh, especially with this this kind of material. Yeah, do you feel like while you're writing something that's close to your home, you're kind of discovering that genre, but also discovering yourself in a way? Yes. And there's always that fear. What am I going to discover? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe I won't like it. <laughs> well, if you don't like it, then you can change it. At least you know that it's there now. Yes. <laughs> um, so what would you give any advice to up and coming authors or writers who are just starting with their work or who are thinking about starting a book or a novel or something? What piece of advice would you give them? Um, so... Well, the main thing is that uh, you, I think you should just write what you feel uh, you need to write. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if it is that you, uh, you need to write fan fiction, you mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. write that mm -hmm. if, that's, if that hits close to home. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, it's not, there's nothing bad in that, uh, writing the, the, this or that. But it, uh, if you if you feel like uh, oh no I'm I'm writing this obscure stuff which no one is going to read uh, no one can read it if that's what you need you uh, you write that maybe down the line you'll write something else if you go to my books none is like another the, you you probably wouldn't say this is written by the same guy and it, it it's not mm. you know I wasn't the same guy yeah. 2005 and 2010 and and now. That's a really interesting, mm. important point. Mm. What is the hardest, you would say, process? What is the hardest thing in the process of writing a book? Is it finding a conclusion? Is it the editing process? Is it coming up with the idea in the first place for you personally? The hardest part is, uh, oh, there's uh, so many hard parts. <laughs> the whole thing is hard. <laughs> the whole thing is hard. Uh, the whole thing, uh, the, what, the, the the hardest thing is obviously that you, that you always feel like uh, an imposter, the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. That uh, you've, uh, you, uh, that it's only perhaps by the end, well, maybe not even then, you feel like, oh, maybe I'm not worthy of writing this. Mm -hmm. uh, so tackling yourself um, is perhaps the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, everything else uh, is a matter of work. You just uh, shouldn't be afraid of work. Mm. Sit down and uh, do the work. There's no such thing as a writer's block. Mm. Uh, you you sit down and uh, write whatever. Mm. <laughs> you just work and work and work. Mm. That's how it. Uh, that's how it goes. Mm. Your books and your writing obviously goes through several, like uh, what do you call it? Like set, like checks and rechecks, like you have to reread them, edit them, cancel out the bad parts. Yes. Does it happen that once it's finally published, you still go back and think, oh, I might have changed that stuff, oh, or might have written that differently? All the time. <laughs> all the time. It's uh, it's uh, a never-ending process. Yeah. Basically, you just have to decide now. Enough is enough. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you would never finish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is no such thing as absolute perfection. But also, you don't know what is absolutely uh, the best because if I go back to my short stories from 2005 uh, like with the skill and the, the 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 knowledge I have now I would I would have written them differently but then I also know that they wouldn't have the same energy mm. you know they wouldn't have that young energy which they had you know and that would be wrong you know they would lose that mm. because that's what's keeping them 
good and relevant. Mm. You know, maybe the, technically they are not perfect in some some ways, but they have something which maybe I don't have now. You know, and and you you gain something, you lose something. Mm. It's n- never like a complete set of of all things that you cover. And uh, there's always something you're concerned with more, and you you focus more on that. Uh, but when it, when you talk about editing, what happens, I think, to all of us, especially when you're doing these um, these readings, you know, at uh, events, mm-hmm. and you're reading, and uh, so you're reading, and immediately you you you're realizing, oh, maybe I should have cut that word, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, or, or, or you know, or that sentence, and uh, and uh, sometimes as you as you read, it happens that you edit. That you don't read everything yeah, yeah, that's on yeah. the page. Yeah. Uh, and, and you just I'm, skip some parts. You just, just skip some parts. <laughs> or say, okay, maybe that wasn't good enough. <laughs> no, you, what you said is true that if you go back and edit like your 2005 work, then maybe in 10 years later, yeah. that edit will be, oh, that's wrong. That that's wrong as well. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> That, that would be completely wrong. Mm. You know, maybe maybe some things could be could be fixed, but uh, but generally it, uh, it would be a complete rewrite, and it would be a rewrite by uh, a different person, by some by a different author. Yeah, yeah. Entirely. Do you have a favorite author or a favorite book, except for yourself, of course? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not my favorite author. No, 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 definitely not. I, I think it'd be anyone who who likes himself best is. Uh, Probably not a yeah, good yeah. author. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a lot of authors. I don't like singling singling out uh, anyone uh, really. I always like someone more now than uh, than yeah. before. You know, there's always new mm-hmm. new voices. So uh, I, I I draw a lot of inspiration from um, writers who are completely unlike me. You know, so so uh, so the. People who do things that I would never do, or uh, I could never do, you know, yeah. I could never master that. Uh, those people. But, yeah. mm-hmm. Have you read um, Solzhenitsyn, The Gulag Archipelago? No. Uh, that's my favorite book. Mm-hmm. It's a. Uh, it's considered to be the most important piece of literature of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and this this guy Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Mm. Uh, he was a prisoner in the Soviet gulags and he like documents yes. like from A to Z everything from like the arrest, not just his personal story, but also mm. the overall things that are going on in the. Yeah, so that kind of opened up my eyes to uh, more into like history and how history is written by the winners. Like we barely talk about the gulags and all that yes. kind of stuff. They were so horrific and it's such a dark book like it has gen- like literally made me cry in some areas yes. while at the same time it's very inspirational because yes. there's this guy who is in the gulag and he's starving and he's telling all these stories of people who have been tortured starved and living through suffering like he himself had cancer in the gulag and like all these other stuff but in the end you realize like humanity still survives. Like people's will to live is very strong and it's hard to break. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. Well, thank That's you so right. much for coming to the podcast. Well, thank you, Musa. Yeah. That was uh, it was a great pleasure talking to, yeah. to Musa finally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening. Peace be upon you all. 